Uh, We're in Ephesians 6. I'm going to read uh, verses 10 through 15. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and have done, have, having done all to stand firm. Stand f- therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come this morning needing to learn from you. As we work our way through Ephesians this morning, we ask you, Holy Spirit, to teach us. Teach us how to put on the full armor of God as you've commanded through through Paul. We pray that you would open our ears to hear truth. We pray that you would apply it to our hearts so that we are ready for the week ahead. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, I was at a family reunion, and I was sitting on the back porch with my brother-in-law, and he's a he's a pilot. He's been so for, for many years. He flew in the Air Force uh, for 20-plus years, and now he's an airline pilot. And I was just shooting the breeze, asking about his day. He arrived that day, and I was like, well, how's work going? I'm like, what is it? You fly all day. What do you, what, how was work today? He's like, well, I blew an engine this morning. He's an airline pilot with people on board, and he blows an engine. I'm going, what are you talking about? Like, why are you here? You know, is that, that's not a big deal? And, you know, I was like, were you on the news? Was this, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that makes headlines, right? I mean, the airline blows an engine, and he was like, eh, it's part of the job. It's part of what we do. And I'm like, you explain that, because how do you, how do you prepare yourself for a blown engine? He said, well, I mean, we, I've flown for years. We spend countless hours in simulators. He said, there's a protocol, and he goes, Engine blows, and he starts rattling off protocol. Number one, you do this. Number two, you do this. Number three, you do this. I'm going, this is amazing. The, the, just kind of the calm and coolness about it. Honestly, it was peaceful. I'm going, man, that's the guy I want flying my plane. To have that kind of peace and to be ready for that kind of turmoil uh, was impressive. This morning, I want to talk about this idea of getting ready. Uh, we've been using Ephesians 6 to preach through the topic of spiritual warfare. And so I want to ask you the question. If you were to rate yourself from a, a scale of 1 to 10, where would you put yourself on there as, as being ready to engage in spiritual warfare? 1 to 10, where would you put yourself? I would guess that the large majority of Christians don't feel ready to engage in spiritual warfare. Most days, we don't even recognize there's a battle going on, right? I mean, it's not even on our radar. Or maybe you realize there's a battle, but you just don't want to think about it out of fear. I asked my wife last night, I said, I'm going to ask people to rate themselves. Where would you rate yourself? And, and her, I love her answer. She said, it's hard to rate yourself because first you have to admit that there's a battle. I'd rather not think about it. It's easier to stay in denial right? I mean, just pretend it's not really there. And so whether we are spiritually asleep and we don't know what's happening or we're in denial, we know it's happening, we just want to forget it. Either way, we're not ready. 
the command is to put on the whole armor of God, and so that includes these shoes. You know, when we were dividing this out and I got shoes, I was like, what am I going to talk about shoes? Like, what are we going to say? What are these shoes? I keep wanting to call them gospel shoes. You can put on the gospel shoes, but that's not exactly what our text says. It says, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness. Now, that comes from the gospel, but the, the shoes are actually readiness. And so I've read this text plenty of times, and I never recognized the difference there, but the, they are shoes of readiness. Readiness is something that we have to put on. And we get it from the gospel of peace, but we're to put on readiness, because readiness is the key. If we're to engage in spiritual warfare, we're going to take that on, then we have to be ready, and, and, and we have to put on the shoes. You know, historically, shoes have kind of, they've, they've played a, a major factor in the effectiveness of war. From Alexander the Great to Julius Caesar, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, they all have battles where, where part of the outcome has come down to who has better shoes, who's got better boots. You know, some, some armies were able to get there faster, right, because they, they weren't walking on blisters and sores. You know, some armies were able to move quicker, you know, over rocky terrain or over obstacles that were put in their place because they had shoes. They li- or just simply they could literally stand firm against the enemy's attacks because they, were, they, were, they had put these shoes on. It's so important. Military books have been written just about this topic, just about military boots. I found one online. It's called The Soldier's Foot and the Military Shoes, written early 1900s. A handbook for officers and non-commissioned officers of the line. He spends 150 pages just talking about shoes. In the Christian book Rome, there's a guy named William Grinnell, the English Puritan in the 1600s. He took on a, a massive undertaking. He has a two-volume set, and it's called the, the Christian Incomplete Armor. And what he does, he just works through what we're preaching through the armor of God, but he has a massive set and he spends over a hundred pages just talking about the shoes of readiness. It's an important topic. Somewhat over, you know, honestly, when you read through the armor of God, you rarely think about the shoes, right? You just kind of glance over it. But here's the good news. Because those who are in Christ have the gospel of peace, the believer can actually be ready for spiritual warfare. We've been given these shoes. We can actually be ready. And without them, so the soldier is rendered useless. And so I want to ask this morning, how does the gospel of peace prepare us and make us ready to engage in spiritual warfare? So if you're taking notes, I'll have two answers to that question. The first, the gospel of peace prepares us defensively, and then the gospel of peace prepares us offensively. And so first we'll look at defensively. The gospel of peace prepares us defensively against the devil's schemes. And so right out of the gate, we have to acknowledge the reality that the devil is a real being. He exists. You can't fight against something that you don't know exists or don't believe exists. And so being ready defensively means you are anticipating an attack from an actual enemy. And so the devil is real, but we need to remember these things about him. He's not omniscient, right? So he's not all-knowing, but... He can learn ways to trip you up. He's not omnipresent, so he he can only be in one place at a time, but 
he has an army of his own. And he sends them out to do his bidding. He sends them out to attack. He's not omnipotent, so he doesn't have unlimited power. But he does have a strategy. Right? He does have a, a plan. There is a, a method to his madness. And this morning, I want to take a peek at the scheme. We're going to look at some of the pages out of his playbook, and I want to see how the gospel gets us ready for each one of these attacks. I'm sure there's lots of them. I mean, you probably rattle off a, a ton in your own mind, but I want to focus on what I think are, are some of the common ones. And so I have four. You know, if, if, we, if we, you know, in any time you prepare in sports, what do you do? You, you watch film. You're trying to get to know the opponent. And so when you go out on the field, you are ready for what you're about to face. And so here's four, four uh, common attacks, I think, that come from the devil. The first is doubt. We're going to look at division, despair, and then we'll look at distraction. The first of those is doubt. So doubt, I mean, honestly, it's the oldest trick in the book. We see this from the very beginning, right? I mean, at Satan in the garden with Adam and Eve, and he, and he weaves in this little bit of doubt into the conversation. Genesis 3 says, starts off strong. It says, the, now the serpent was more crafty. So right out of the gate, he's a trickster. He's more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent says to the woman, you shall not surely die. Right? I mean, not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, God doesn't want what's best for you. He's holding out. See, the devil wants you to doubt the kindness of God. The devil wants you to doubt the reliability of his covenant promises. They want you to doubt his very word. He wants you to doubt the scriptures. He wants you to doubt things like the resurrection. There's the resurrection, really. You're going to put your trust in a man who died and was dead for three days and apparently just rose from the dead. He wants you to doubt the very existence of God. The, the devil actually wants you to doubt his very existence. Think about that. How much time do we spend talking about the devil? I've said the, de the word devil this morning probably more so than I have in all of my sermons combined, right? I mean, it, how often do we talk about the devil? The truth is it, it sounds kind of kooky, and we don't want to sound kooky, right? Do you know how crazy it sounds to speak of spiritual warfare in a culture full of naturalistic atheists? Naturalistic atheism is the idea that what you see in the, in the natural world is really all there is. There is no spiritual realm. There is no devil. There is no heaven. There is no hell. What you see is what you get, and that's what you can put your trust in. And so this idea of a spiritual realm, and we shrink back from the truth of that. We shrink back, and that little seed of doubt, it backs us down from engaging it backs us down from participating and being a part of this spiritual battle that's going on around us. Because that are, the truth is our doubts, at the very core, they're a denial of God's promises. 
And so the gospel of peace, it proclaims the truth of God's covenant promises to us. And so even in the midst of your doubt, there's good news, right? Even in your doubts, there is grace. God is still faithful to teach you and to strengthen your belief, to to grow your faith, even in moments of doubt. So the gospel of peace prepares us for that. And the second way the devil comes at us is through division. I think this one's obvious, right? It's, you know, you look at the context of this passage. So Ephesians 6, right, right before this, what are we talking about? Husbands and wives, parents and children, servants and masters. Why would Paul, why would he all of a sudden go into a, a, a talk about spiritual warfare after speaking of the home, the family, and the workplace? Because he knows as well as you know, this is the battleground. If there's a war going on, this is where it will be fought in our homes and in our families and our working relationships. And it's no coincidence. It's no coincidence because if the devil knows if he can attack here, if he can get a foothold in families and in our working relationships, then he can tear down society. He can rip it apart. Earlier in Ephesians 2, he said, By the blood of Christ, Jesus reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Reconciled us both to God. That both, he's talking about the the Jew and the Gentile, both reconciled to God into one body, thereby killing the hostility. Talk about racial reconciliation. The Jew and the Gentile divide was torn down, and the two became one body And we call that the church. You see, the gospel of peace reconciles both our vertical relationship with God, but it also reconciles our horizontal relationship with each other. And so if we're going to engage in spiritual warfare, we need to be ready for that tack of division. And thirdly, he's going to come at us with despair. Despair, Revelation 12 Satan is described as the deceiver of the world and the accuser of our brothers. He's the deceiver and the accuser. And so Satan will come at us all day long, just poking where it hurts or or, or whispering lies or just getting in there and digging, right? And, and, And the truth is some of it's true. We're sinful people, and so he just digs. And he says things like, you are unworthy. You are unworthy to be a child of God. You are lonely because you are unlovable. You should hide your face in shame because of what you have done. Your sins are too great to ever be forgiven. Just think this morning. You come to church and think of the way you talk to your kids. Or think of the way that you spoke to your parents this morning. You shouldn't be here. I know as I'm, I'm preparing to preach my first sermon here at, at Redeemer, You better believe I got plenty of lies fed at me, plenty of accusations thrown at me this week. You know, like, you aren't supposed to be here. That congregation won't accept you. What does a 42-year-old guy know about teenagers? And maybe the worst, no Bulldog fan is going to listen to you. You're a Clemson fan. (laughs) The truth is the devil and his minions, they'll do this all day long. I mean, just fire away at us. The gospel of peace prepares us for this. 
If we are rooted in the truth of the gospel, we are ready. Satan says you're unlovable. But God says, I love you. And he didn't just say it. He proved it by sending his own son to die on the cross for you. Satan accuses you of your sin, and Christ says, I paid for those already. Satan says, you'll never be good enough, but the gospel of peace says, because of Jesus, you don't have to be. And so we can be ready for those kind of attacks of despair. Those moments of despair, the gospel of peace is like balm for your soul, preaching the good news to a heavy heart. The fourth way it comes at us is distraction. Now, I, I, truthfully, I think this might be the most effective thing going on in our world right now, right? Distraction. Let's distract them with the things that don't matter so they'll be ineffective in the areas that do. Matthew 6, Jesus says, If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What Jesus is saying is, look, you're focused on the wrong things. Set your eyes on the kingdom of God. You, you realize we, we are freed up to do kingdom work because all those things have been taken care of. We have a heavenly father who loves us and therefore we are free to do kingdom work. We don't have to be anxious about these things that don't matter. And so we need to hear that gospel truth week in and week out. We need to recalibrate our attention on Christ. It's why the Lord gave us the Sabbath. I love the, the weekly cycle. He knows how we're wired. He knows how we're built. Right? He knows we need that regular gospel preaching to find rest in the peace we have with God, to renew our strength as we grow in grace and we go back out into the world. And the gospel of peace reminds us what really matters during the week. So if readiness is as defense, is having a firm footing in the gospel, firm and ready for any attack. As we look at the offensive side now, readiness, it's, it means mobility. It means alertness. It means anticipating gospel opportunities. And so point two, the gospel of peace prepares us offensively to advance the kingdom of God. Our Old Testament reading is how I mentioned, it ties in beautifully, right? Isaiah 52 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. That word publish, I mean, it, it's to proclaim, right? To proclaim peace, to proclaim happiness, to proclaim salvation, bringing the good news to others. This is, this is advancement, right? This is movement forward, taking the gospel into places and homes and lives where it was previously unknown, in terms of warfare language, proclaiming the good news to the world, is, it's, it's taking back ground, right? It's taking back ground that was previously captured by and under the reign of the enemy. Second Timothy 2, when Paul is talking to Timothy and he's describing 
you know, the, how he should act. He says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And here's why. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And see, unbelievers are not the enemy. Satan and the power of sin is. And we get to participate in the rescue of those held captive. If you're here this morning and you are without Christ, I want you to know you're being held captive. The good news of the gospel is that the wrath of God against sinners was taken away through the death of Jesus. Jesus paid for peace by his own blood. The good news is that this gospel of peace is offered freely and it is received freely by faith in Jesus. John Piper has a, a great quote uh, that helps frame for me what, what this warfare really is about. It says, the aim of our warfa- warfare is that people would accept the terms of peace that God holds out, namely faith in Jesus. And the only reason there is any conflict at all is because the power of sin and the powers of Satan are dead set against making peace with God. And so as we put on the shoes of readiness given by the gospel of peace, we, are, we, are, we need a, a more accurate picture of the world we live in. We need an accurate picture of the call for Christians to proclaim the gospel to a, a dying world. And so as we close and we leave here this morning, the point of this sermon is not to leave here with intimidation or to leave here scared because you realize the devil is out there prowling around to attack. That's not the point. The point is to have a, a more accurate picture of the gospel, a more accurate picture of the might and the power and the kindness and the grace of our Savior. And it's because of that peace that we've been given that we can be ready. In the book of Numbers, Moses sent out 12 spies. They're looking into the land of Canaan and they want to know what they're up against. And so they send out 12 spies to go and, and scope out the land. And they return. And 10 of the 12, they come back with a, with a bad report. They come back with heavy hearts. They come back terrified. They come back you know, scared. While Caleb and Joshua, the other two, had the peace of knowing the might and the power of God. They were prepared. They were ready to take the land that God had given them because of an accurate pic- they had an accurate picture of God. They had an accurate picture of the gospel of peace. Numbers 13 says, Caleb quieted the people before Moses. And he said, let us go up at once and occupy it. You can just hear the zeal, like, let's go do this. For we are well able to overcome it. And then the men who had gone up with him said, uh, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim. The Nephilim were apparently giant, huge men, right? The sons of Anak who came from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. And, we, and so we seem to them. 
So we look at these other two, Caleb and Joshua. They were ready to go take the land, not because they underestimated their opponent. I think they had a pretty good picture, right? I mean, they saw the Nephilim. They saw these huge men. They were giants. They were stronger. They were bigger. There were more of them. And the people of God really were like grasshoppers. So they had a pretty good idea of what they were up against. But what they also had a pretty good idea of is the might and power of their God. They put on the shoes of readiness given to them by the gospel of peace. They were prepared because of what God had done on their behalf, and they had confidence that he would do it again. And so if you and I are ready to be ready to engage in spiritual warfare, we need an accurate picture of the gospel. And as we experience more of the saving grace of Jesus, we are better prepared when attacks do come, because they will. But an accurate picture of the saving grace of Jesus gets us ready. And more importantly, it gets us ready to proclaim the good news. As 1 Peter 3 says, we will be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the peace that we have through Jesus. You are our covenant God, and we are bound by your promises. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, for saving us. It is a fearful thing to realize you are in the midst of a battle, and help us to not forget that. Help us to put on the full armor of God and the shoes of readiness as we rest once again in the good news of the gospel of peace. It is so freeing to realize that the war has already been won. Through you, Lord Jesus, you've won the war. And so I pray you would open our eyes this week for the opportunities that come to share this good news with others. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.